0: Jeremiah chapter 4, we're going to pick up where we left off. There is a new declaration, if you will, a new sermon that Jeremiah preaches beginning in verse 5. I'm entitling this portion of our message, Countdown to Judgment. In verse 5, Jeremiah writes, Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say, Blow the trumpet in the land. Cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. Set up the standard toward Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay, for I will bring disaster from the north and great destruction. The lion has come up from his thicket and the destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste without inhabitant for this. Clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament and wail for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish and the heart of the princes. The priests shall be astonished and the prophets shall wonder. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people and Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. At that time, it will be said to this people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse a wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will speak judgment against them. Behold, he shall come up like clouds and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, for we are plundered. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims, Affliction from Mount Ephraim. Make mention to the nations, yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers come from a far country and raise their voice against the cities of Judah. Like keepers of a field, they are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. Your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter because it reaches to your heart. O oh, my soul, my soul, I am pained in my very heart. My heart makes a noise in me. I cannot hold my peace because you have heard, O my soul, the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. Destruction upon destruction is cried, for the whole land is plundered. Suddenly my tents are plundered and my curtains in a moment. How long will I see the standard and hear the sound of the trumpet? For my people are foolish, they have not known me. They are silly children, and they have no understanding. They are wise to do evil, but to do good they have no knowledge. I beheld the earth, and indeed it was without form and void. In the heavens they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and indeed they trembled, and all the hills moved back and forth. I beheld, and indeed there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens had fled. I beheld, and indeed the fruitful land was a wilderness, and all its cities were broken down. At the presence of the Lord, by his fierce anger, for thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate. Yet I will not make a full end for this shall the earth mourn and the heavens above be black because I have spoken. I have purposed and will not relent, nor will I turn back from it. The whole city shall flee from the noise of the horsemen and bowmen. They shall go into thickets and climb up on rocks. Every city shall be forsaken and not a man shall dwell in it. And when you are plundered, what will you do? Though you clothe yourself with crimson, though you adorn yourself with ornaments of gold, though you enlarge your eyes with paint, in vain you will make yourself fair. Your lovers will despise you. They will seek your life, for I have heard a voice as of a woman in labor, the anguish as of her who brings forth her first child, the voice of the daughter of Zion bewailing herself. She spread her hands, saying, Woe is me now, for my soul is weary because of the murderers. In this portion, we see an alarm sounded in verses 5 through 8. There's a warning to the leaders in verse 9. The false prophets cry peace in verse 10. Fire and swift judgment in verses 11 through 13. Pay attention to God's warning in verses fourteen through eighteen. The day of anguish. And sorrow for Jeremiah in verses 19 through 21. Judgment for foolish behavior in verse 22. Cosmic catastrophes are talked about in verses 23 through 27, which seem to mirror Matthew chapter 24, verses 29 through 31. And then he speaks of a day of inescapable judgment in verse 28, 29, 30, and 31. For Jeremiah, it's doomsday. For Jeremiah, it's judgment day. He has a vision of a catastrophe of God fulfilling his promise to exercise judgment on the nation for their refusal to repent, for their refusal to return, for their refusal to obey the Lord. Now, you've got to remember when Jeremiah lived, there was no radio, there was no TV, there was no Internet, there was no daily newspaper. Jeremiah couldn't purchase billboards. He didn't have big vans driving up and down the street saying, Judgment Day is coming. When the people faced danger or threat, a watchman would blow a trumpet. The watchman would sound the alarm. And when you heard the trumpet sound, you knew that the city was in a state of emergency and the watchman's job was to warn of impending danger. On many occasions, I've used the illustration how before the time of modern electrical switches and before the days of warning, before a mechanical means, when the cross guards would come down, when trains would go by. Men were actually hired to go out with a lantern and wave a red lantern back and forth so that motorists wouldn't drive on the tracks. And hit ongoing trains. And I told you the story of how, how tragically a, a young couple were killed in a tra- tragic car accident. And the, the, the guy, the lantern guy who waved the lantern was called to testify. And he said, were you there that night? And he said, I was there. And he, they said, did you have your lantern? And he said, I had my lantern. And they said, did you wave the lantern? And he said, I waved my lantern. And when he left the witness stand, you could hear him mumble. I'm just glad they didn't ask me if the lantern was lit. Oh, is right. What good does a warning serve unless the warning is actually given and the day of doom begins for Jeremiah with the blast of a trumpet and the image concludes in Jerusalem personified as a woman screaming because she's surrounded by death. Jeremiah speaks of the judgment that will unfold and the sorrows that will come. And even as he speaks about the judgment that's coming, and even as he speaks about the sorrow that's going to come, he warns the nation again to repent and to return to the Lord. The passage describes punishment in verses five through 18 and pain in verses 19 through 31. And the image Jeremiah uses sounds like modern Middle Eastern campaigns. He talks about the image of Operation Northern Lion in verse 7. He talks about Operation Desert Storm in verses 11, 12, and 13. Look again in verse 5. Declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem and say... Blow the trumpet in the land, cry, gather together and say, assemble yourselves and let us go into the fortified cities. The prophecy begins with sound the alarm when he says, declare in Judah and proclaim in Jerusalem. He says, go to the people who are the subjects of the prophecy and who are going to have to incur the consequences of what I'm talking about. Jeremiah's job was to sound the alarm and to declare a spiritual state of emergency. Now, many of you realize that part of our job as Christians is not only to proclaim the gospel, which we are to do. It's not only to defend the gospel, which we are to do. We are to proclaim the gospel and we are to defend the gospel. But we are also called to warn About judgment. Some of the people, and since most of the people, have refused to repent of their sin, Jeremiah is warning them to flee. Now think about that. God was ready to bring judgment from the north. Babylon was to be the tool, the whip, the rod that God would use to judge his people. And to avoid capture, they were to make their way to the nearest walled city or the nearest fortified city. In other words, he gives the alarm and then he gives them a mechanism whereby they can at least delay judgment. You know what I think? So that they have even one more small opportunity to repent. You see, people might be getting tired of hearing a message that Jeremiah is going to give. And remember what I've told you. How do I creatively speak this message through all 51 verses? I'm going to take my clue from Jeremiah. We believe in the gospel of Jesus. We believe in the gospel of God. We believe that we're to defend the gospel. We also believe that we're to warn people about the judgment of God. And you see, there is a huge shift in the American church. That's all for talking about the love of God and they're all for talking about the gospel of God and they're all about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God. But they're reluctant to talk about the justice of God and the warnings of God. As a matter of fact, the most fashionable thing right now is to pretend that hell isn't real. That if it is real, then it's probably temporal. And that if it's only temporal, and if God in his grace and his mercy is going to universally reconcile all people to himself, then maybe hell isn't really that bad. But the Bible doesn't say that. The Bible gives warnings that we are to avoid hell at all costs and that there is a message of salvation and that there's a message of hope. Paul, writing to the Romans in chapter 1, verse 16 said, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith that is, as it is written, The just shall live by faith, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, what Many people forget is that Paul is quoting Habakkuk chapter two, who is writing at the same time that Jeremiah is writing concerning the warnings that are coming from the north, that a real God is going to judge. But guess what? The just shall live by faith and that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness for people who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In first Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14, Paul writes, "Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all." Paul doesn't say one size fits all. We warn the unruly. We comfort those who are weak and broken. And we're patient with everyone. And so in verse 6 it says, Set up the standard towards Zion. Take refuge. Do not delay. For I will bring disaster from the north. A great destruction. The warning comes. The warning is given. And you can see a series of events that begin to unfold in the text. Go to a place where you can be safe. For as long as you can be saved again, I'm going to suggest to you that he's doing it, holding out hope that even though they have wickedly refused to repent. They still might. That's what I do, by the way. I hold out hope even when I go to the city jail. I hold out hope, even though I go to the hospital. I hold out hope, even though it looks like a person's decisions have meant the ruination of their marriage, even though it's meant the culmination of their life. Maybe it's meant the uh, the destruction of their of their family and of their home. But I hold out hope. I hold out hope that each and every moment of each and every day, Will bring the possibility that someone will change their mind. Some scholars suggest that the multiple threats to Jerusalem. May have been taking place at a time when the Scythians were coming from the north. The Scythians by the way were a warlike people who came from the area north of the Black Sea. And east of the Carpathian Mountains. They may have been what was called the Ashkenaz, and it's mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 27. And during the period of about 640 to about 600 B.C., they controlled a vast area of land from the Caspian Sea to northern Armenia and Cappadocia. And according to the father of historians, Herodotus, they followed the Mediterranean coast down to the borders of Egypt about 630 to 625 B.C. They were turned back by Pharaoh, son. Uh, and if this is true, then during the reign of Josiah, when Jeremiah is making this proclamation, it could very well be that even though the Babylonians are knocking at the door from the north and the east, there is a direct threat that is taking place right at the very moment that he's writing the words. Is it possible That Jeremiah might have had the Scythians in mind? Is it possible that Jeremiah at first thought they were the threat? And that the threat never materialized? That could somewhat explain what we're going to find out in a moment. Because Jeremiah is going to begin to complain about the false prophets and the false prophecies In verse seven, it says the lion has come up from his thicket and this destroyer of nations is on his way. He has gone forth from his place to make your land desolate. Your cities will be laid waste and without habitation. I think that the word lion is a metaphorical allusion to King Nebuchadnezzar, the then king of Babylon, who's spoken of in Daniel chapter seven, verse four. In other words, historically, as he's writing this, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. He is going to lay waste to the people. But I think that there's also a picture of another lion that's spoken of in the Bible. Remember, in the New Testament, it says, your enemy, the devil, like a roaring lion, comes out of the thicket. And he prowls around the earth seeking whom he may destroy. There's a real devil and he comes out of his thicket and he destroys the nations. By the way, the word nations is going. It can mean the Gentiles and the destroyer of the nations is on his way. The idea being the people group who... Are the people's other than the Jews? But what he's basically saying is, guess what? The same person who destroys the Gentiles is also going to destroy us. That expression has come up or has gone up. It's a present danger, not a future peril. And by the way, the Babylonian king will make good on the prophecy first in 597 BC when he will decimate the land and he will take the first wave of captives away and then he will return In 586 B.C. and literally tear down the walls, he will storm the temple, he will remove the temple, and he will take all of the rest of the people into captivity. Jerusalem's stones will prove no match against the king's war machine. But what's interesting about the prophecy and what's interesting about Jerusalem is it has been stormed many times. It's been stormed over and over again. It was stormed by the Babylonians. It was invaded by the Persians and the Greeks. It was invaded by the Romans and destroyed. And the New Testament seems to indicate that Jerusalem will be surrounded once again and destroyed one more time. That doesn't sound good, does it? Especially in the light that Jerusalem has only come into Jewish possession since 1967. In verse 8 it says, For this, clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament and wail, for the fierce anger of the Lord has not turned back from us. You need to understand something. Sackcloth is the garment of mourning. When it says, for this, clothe yourself with sackcloth, lament and wail. I'm going to suggest to you that Jeremiah is talking about two things. He's already talked about the reality, how that a change of heart needs to take place on the inside. But I'm going to also suggest to you that he's inviting and encouraging the people to have a visible expression of the internal condition that is taking place in their life. In other words, if you're really ready to turn from your sin and if you're really ready to embrace God as Lord and Savior, then make some visible accommodations on the outside. Has not turned back from us. Remember, is a verb form of the word that we've talked about a lot because it appears a lot in the book of Jeremiah. Shubh. It's the word that means to return has not turned back from us. Throughout the prophecy, God calls His people to shub. Remember? Over and over again, it's the turning away from sin. And it's a turning to the Lord. And note what Jeremiah says. So that he may shub. Turn back from his fierce anger. And that comes as a surprise and A little disconcerting to some people. That God is actually unhappy with sin. For those people who say, well, he's God and he understands about these things. They misunderstand God's holiness and they misunderstand God's righteousness. Clearly, God does know that we're limited. God knows that we're flesh. God knows that we make mistakes. The pinnacle of sin nationally was reached under the failed rule of Manasseh, Hezekiah, and Josiah. Remember, they've attempted reforms. But the attempts, even though they're sincere, the results are still superficial. In other words, the leadership of the nation has said, you know what, this whole idolatry thing, bad idea. This whole thing about worshiping false gods, it's a bad idea. Let's go back to our religious roots. Let's worship God. Let's sacrifice in the temple. Let's remember what God has said. Let's do what we're supposed to do as a people who honor and and have made a covenant with God. And the people went, okay. But it was just an external change. It was a religious change. It wasn't a a heartfelt change. And in verse nine, remember, it says, and it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord, that the heart of the king shall perish and the heart of the princes. The priests shall be astonished and the prophets shall wonder the day of judgment, the day of reckoning, the countdown to judgment when it actually happens, when Babylon literally shows up on their doorstep is devastating to the leaders. In the day of judgment, the leaders of the earth will experience a sense of panic. They will be unable to respond. They will be unable to comfort the people or mount an attack against their enemy. That's what he's saying. What will judgment day be? Judgment day will be a day in which leadership will ultimately, fundamentally fail. Gripped with fear and panic. The leaders faint in the day of judgment. The priests and the prophets are utterly horrified because the Lord God has allowed the judgment to come to the people of God in the city of God. The temple is destroyed. They assured the people, no, God's going to come through. No, God would never allow Jerusalem to be attacked. No, God would never allow the temple to be destroyed. Over and over and over again throughout the book of Jeremiah, the false priests and the false prophets are going to offer a false hope. The priests and the prophets overlooked one important detail. That God will not bless the people who dishonor him and disobey him. The Lord's promises are for the obedient who keep his commandments, who live righteously. I was having a conversation with someone earlier this week and I said, you know what the antidote to fear is? The antidote to fear is love. And do you know what the antidote to confusion is? The antidote to confusion is obedience to the Spirit of God. Do you want the confusion to go away? Listen to what God has to say. Ask the Lord, Lord, what do you want for me? And then obey Him. And guess what? The confusion will go away. Because if of their sins, the people of Judah were facing this terrifying prospect. The judgment was going to happen. Fear and horror were going to grip the hearts of the leaders. Does that shock you or surprise you? You know, we're living in a world where Judgment Day really does generate Fear and terror for some. But it also generates ridicule and mocking, particularly on the part of the unbeliever. The unbeliever says, The earth continues to spin, the seasons come and go. Yes, there are bizarre weather patterns that are taking place. Yes, uh, we do have the uh, technological ability to completely destroy ourselves off the face of the, the map. Yes, our president does seem to have turned his back on Israel and Jerusalem. But hey, no problem, right? i got to tell you something. Does God have a plan and a purpose for Israel still? And for Jerusalem, still, does God have a plan and a purpose, not only for that nation and those people, but for this nation and our people and for all of the nations all around us? You've heard me talk often about the fact that I believe that God has unfinished business with the Jew. I also believe that God has unfinished business with the Gentiles. I believe that ultimately when the Bible in the New Testament speaks of the return of Jesus Christ, there is language that is very, very dramatic of how Jesus separates the nations, the sheep and the goats on his left and his right. And the nations are dealt with in direct proportion to how they dealt with Israel and how they dealt with the Jew. That tells me something. As a matter of fact, in verse 10, I want you to read it carefully. Surely, it says in verse 10, then I said, "Ah, Lord God, surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem, saying you shall have peace, whereas the sword reaches to the heart. Question. Does God ever deceive his people? What do you think the answer is? That's the right answer. So you read it in here in verse 10 and you go, oh, no, Is the Bible saying that God deceives his people. No, God never deceives his people. Jeremiah may have thought that God had deceived them. As a matter of fact, look at Jeremiah chapter 20. Just turn the pages real quickly to verse 7 where it says, O oh Lord, you induced me, and I was persuaded. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. As a matter of fact, Jeremiah isn't accusing the Lord of misrepresentation, but is giving vent to his great sorrow over the terrible situation. And here, Jeremiah thinks, or at least seems to indicate, That because he had failed to understand the full import of the divine revelation concerning the impending judgment. Actually, God had plainly warned the people and he had plainly warned them over and over and over again. Do you think people are really seriously going to be surprised when Jesus shows up? Yeah, I think that that's the right answer. But do you think they can honestly say, no one ever told me Jesus is coming back? You're kidding me, right? You mean this whole Bible thing has been true all along? Or can you imagine as you stand before the judgment seat of Christ or the great throne of God in heaven and there you are and there is the majestic resurrected Lord ruling in grace and glory do you think people are going to be shocked and surprised and say you really are the creator of heaven and earth and you're the Lord of all things you think they're going to be shocked I think that they are going to be shocked surely you have greatly deceived this people in Jerusalem I'm going to suggest to you That the people were completely unprepared for judgment. And it's okay for you to ask the question, why? 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 Why were they completely unprepared for judgment? Let's begin. Number one, they didn't believe the message of God. Number two, they did believe the false and misleading messages of peace and safety and false assurance and false hope. By the way, if you don't believe what God has to say, and you believe exactly the opposite of what God has to say, does judgment come as a shock and a surprise to you? I think that the answer is yes. Remember what the slogan of the false prophets are as we read through the book of Jeremiah. Here's their slogan. It can't happen to us. Judgment here to us. We have the scroll of Moses. We have the temple of God. We have the Ark of the Covenant. Moses scroll ark temple. Safe. We're saved. Judgment couldn't happen to the United States of America. We have the Constitution. For a little while longer. Judgment couldn't happen to the United States of America. What nation has ever been greater? I don't think any nation. What nation has ever been more generous than our nation? I don't think any, any nation. But to whom much is given, much is required. Could judgment happen here? Here. I want you to do the math very quickly on just this very small passages that we've covered so far. Jeremiah, verse 5, sound the alarm. Jeremiah, verse 6, run to the walled cities for safety. Cover yourself with sackcloth and ashes. This is going to give you time to repent. Wash your hearts by confessing your sins in verse 14. The Babylonian army is on its way, verse 13. Let's look again. <laughs> at verse 10 then I said "Ah, oh, Lord God surely you have greatly deceived the people in Jerusalem saying you shall have peace whereas the sword reaches to the heart do you understand what you're reading the judgment itself has penetrated beyond the superficial beyond the hardness of Of unbelief. As a matter of fact, look what it says in verse 11. At that time, it will be said to the people and to Jerusalem, a dry wind of the desolate heights blows in the wilderness toward the daughter of my people, not to fan or to cleanse. There's a wind blowing. There's a storm. There's a desert storm that's coming, but the the storm isn't To bring relief. In verse 12. A wind too strong for these will come for me. Now I will also speak judgment against them. Verse 13. Behold, he shall come up like clouds and his chariots like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us for we are plundered. In other words, he sees an army begin to gather to the north and they come like on the wind itself. They are faster than eagles. In other words, the judgment comes swiftly and cannot be avoided. And and so in verse 14, look what it says. Pay attention to God's warning in verse 14. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? Again, in verse 14, we see the warning, we see the judgment, we see the terrifying reality that's coming upon them. But even in the midst of all of the warning and the terrifying swiftness, Jeremiah goes... You could repent. You could still change. Look what it says. Wash your heart from wickedness. He's begging the people to repent. How can the people defend themselves from the enemy on the outside? This is an important principle. How can you defend yourself when you are facing what looks like certain judgment? Here's what Jeremiah says. Do you want safety on the outside? Change the inside. Do you know? Do you want to know what is better than an impregnable fortress? Do you want to know what's better than walled cities? Do you want to know what's better than political alliances? Do you want to know what's better than the right alliances or the right economy or the right government? Do you want to know what's better than all of that stuff? Cleanse your heart wash deep on the inside a woman earlier this week lamented over the fact that she hadn't been baptized she was thinking about hey you know what I I see all of these things happen I I don't know exactly what to believe I I try to do the best that I can and I'm a little bit afraid I haven't even been baptized yet but God wants a washing that begins in the heart it's not religious activity that's going to ingratiate you to God Going to church and having a Bible and and deciding to be baptized at the next baptism. Don't get me wrong. I want you to come to church. I want you to read your Bible. I'm so glad that you're here. But if you decide that religious activities can somehow substitute for a deep conviction that I can no longer afford to live in rebellion and disobedience against God, then you're missing the point. Note what Jeremiah says. That you may be saved. O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. Is the judgment coming? Does there seem to be any way to avoid the judgment? But apparently, if there is a dramatic washing of the heart, there is a salvation. Look what it says. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? God's warnings are conditional. How long shall your evil thoughts lodge within you? God warns so that he need not destroy. He says, how long will you allow the internal thought patterns to continue in your life? And by the way, there seems to be some indication that you have the ability to stop thinking those rotten thoughts. The Bible says that you're to put on the mind of Christ. The Bible says that you've been saved, you've been washed, you've been purified. Remember in the book of Philippians, he talks about whatever things are, are good, whatever things are pure, whatever things are noble, whatever. That, that these are the things that you're to think on. In other words, part of the point of the passage is that you have to make a radical commitment that your lifestyle, the things that you look at and the things that you occupy in your brain, and your heart, are fundamentally, fundamentally and radically changed. And In verse 15, it says, For a voice declares from Dan and proclaims affliction from Mount Ephraim. What does that mean? What does it mean, for a voice declares from Dan? Again, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Israeli geography, what is the northernmost tribe? Dan. Dan is the northernmost tribe. Dan is the tribe that borders against the neighbors to the north. So when it says, For a voice declares from Dan... It means the enemy's presence has already come. I'm going to suggest to you that the voice from Dan may be the watchman or the military who's on the lookout for that tribal outpost. In other words, the threat from the north is already in the land. It means that the enemy has already arrived. In other words, what Jeremiah is basically saying is this isn't. When I say blow the trumpet, when I say flee to the fortified cities, I'm here to tell you that it isn't that judgment is on its way. It's already come. It's already here. It's already here. The voice from Dan, I'm going to suggest to you, is the watchman or the military lookout in Dan. And it means that they're there. The verse suggests that there's little time for repentance. And so that's part of the point of the passage. The point of the passage is, You don't have time to play games. You don't have time to mess around. You don't have time to go, well, I'm going to think about this. You know, maybe I'll change my ways tomorrow. Maybe I'll change my ways after the upcoming election. Maybe I'll change my ways when the dollar collapses. Maybe I'll change my ways when there's blood in the streets. Maybe I'll change my ways when there's an absolute meltdown. Of the economy or of the government. Maybe that's when I'll change. But here's what he's saying. The clock is ticking. The enemy's already here. For those of you who have gone to Israel with me. You can drive from Dan to Jerusalem. In the space of less than half a day. Do you know what that means? What it means, because it's a short journey from Dan to Jerusalem. It's a short journey from the source of judgment to the apocalyptic outcome. That's what he's saying. Mount Ephraim, by the way, is a range of mountains that were eight to ten miles from Jerusalem. And the usage, I think, of the, na- of the names of Dan and Mount Ephraim indicate just how quickly the enemy is able to advance. In other words, for the person who's thinking, wow, if an army is on the move, it's going to take them a while to get from Babylon to Dan and then from Dan to Ephraim and then from Ephraim to Jerusalem. Here's the point that Jeremiah is making. Let me see if I can make it for you. Does God know the people are in trouble? Does Jeremiah know that the people are in trouble? Does the military watchman in Dan know that the people are in trouble? He's trying trying to raise the sense of urgency in the heart of the people. He's trying to get them to sense Look, this isn't just the rantings of a prophet gone wild. That's the point that he's making. The point that he's making is this may seem all religious and stuff to you. What can I do to impress upon you how real the threat is and how certain The judgment is. And then Jeremiah says in verse 16, make mention to the nations. goim again. Yes, proclaim against Jerusalem that watchers have come from a far country and raise their voice against the cities of Judah. Here's what Jeremiah is saying. The nations that surround Judah are called on to bear witness that besiegers are coming against Jerusalem. When he says make mention to the nations, the word can mean to Warn. It can also mean, I need you to remember to bring something up. That when you are looking at the nations that are surrounding Judah, that they're here to tell you something. And I need to give you just a little history lesson here. When Nebuchadnezzar, before he came and pillaged Judah, he literally began in Persia, Cappadocia, Turkey, Tyre, Sidon, Edom. He began to swallow the whole area. Now, if you discovered that Mexico collapsed to socialism and Canada collapsed to socialism and there was an economic collapse in Mexico, and there was an economic collapse in Canada, could you honestly just sit there and go, there's not going to be any economic collapse in the United States of America? If you see the nations around you tumbling, falling, succumbing to the pressure (laughs) that Nebuchadnezzar is bringing, you would hope that you would get a message. But here's part of the challenge. Part of the challenge is no matter how many times God repeats the warning, no matter how many times Jeremiah shares the warning, no matter how many nations collapse all around them, they still don't believe. Do you know what a rationalization is? I've defined this for you over and over again. It's a plausible but untrue excuse of why people do what they do. You'll notice that Harold Camping gave a rationalization why the world didn't come to an end on May 21st. There was a judgment. It was an invisible judgment. See, we laugh, but but you've got to understand something. He He can't bring himself to say the words that we need to hear him say. I was wrong. I deceived you. I stupidly, wrongly, allegorically interpreted things that I had no meaning. And then I disregarded other scriptures at great expense. And I deceived so many people. I was wrong. By the way, would you have more respect for him if he said that? I would, too. I would, too. And in verse 17, it says, like keepers of a field are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me says the lord this is the law of sowing and reaping in verse 17 in verse 17 like keepers of a field He's talking about that Jerusalem has rebelled and rejected the Lord. The siege is going to take place. The prediction is stated as a fact. Shepherds and herdsmen are those who kept watch over the fields. Remember even in the New Testament how the the, the shepherds would keep watch over their fields by night. Remember what they're keeping watch against. They're keeping watch against predators. They're keeping watch against wolves. They're keeping watch against people who will harvest the field illegally. Like keepers of a field. They are against her all around because she has been rebellious against me, says the Lord. In other words, the rebellious and wicked people have surrounded Judah, keeping watch as if that's going to keep God's judgment from happening. In verse 18, it says your ways and your doings have procured these things for you. This is your wickedness because it is bitter, because it reaches to your heart. Here's what God is saying. Jerusalem has brought this bitter doom, this horrible judgment on herself. The doom and the catastrophe break the dark barriers that remained intact against the warnings by God through Jeremiah and the other prophets. Now, I want you to think about this. God says there's going to be judgment. They say, we don't believe you. Jeremiah says there's going to be judgment and we don't believe you. And Jeremiah is basically saying that the Lord is making this prophetic statement. Jerusalem has brought the judgment on themselves. The doom and the catastrophe will break down the dark barriers and the warnings that they tried to build. In other words, you probably heard of things called defense mechanisms. These are little psychological and social things that we do. We put up walls and we put up barriers so that we don't have to deal with the disgusting truth about ourselves. And what is the disgusting truth about ourselves? That apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we are hopelessly estranged from God. We are sinners in need of a Savior. And the walls have to come down. In order for us to come to grips and say, Lord, you're exactly right. My wickedness and my sin has brought horrible consequences down on me. The word translated wickedness. This is your wickedness. It's a very interesting word. It's almost untranslatable. It's the Hebrew word ra. There's a play on words in the Hebrew text. The word is doom a dreadful, horrible, doom the word is a description of the of what the evil one does in job chapter 20 verse 12 or the utter punishment or the evil that comes upon an individual as it's talked about in genesis chapter 19 verse 19 it's the same evil that's spoken of, the bitter evil that's spoken of in chapter two, verse 19, when Jeremiah says it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord. In other words, he's saying it has reached to your very heart, the heart you refuse to wash, the heart that you refuse to cleanse, the heart that you refuse to submit to the Lordship of God. In other words, he's basically saying you have refused to wash, you refuse to cleanse, you've refused to turn, you've refused to submit, and because you refuse to wash and you refuse to turn and you've refused to submit, you have invited this amazing, this horrible, this terrible consequence. I know this seems pretty dark, doesn't it? because remember like when i was speaking and teaching through ecclesiastes if you take ecclesiastes out of its context and you forget to read the whole bible you could walk away going oh this is terrible. but here's the hope there's hope if you will turn and if you will wash, if you will avail yourself of the mercy and the grace and the generosity of God, then you won't experience the judgment. And by the way, the ultimate and the most awful judgment is the reality of hell. But here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible says that the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. Each and every one of us deserve a temporal judgment for the horrible consequences of our bad behavior. And an internal judgment because of the consequences of our bad behavior. But that is the message of the gospel. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, you might lose sight as you're reading through Jeremiah chapter 4 and Jerusalem, the whole point of the Bible. God is going to discipline his children and Jerusalem is going to be taken. They are going to be removed so that idolatry can be permanently cleansed. They are going to be returned to Jerusalem free from idolatry. And the Messiah is going to be born. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. He is going to be raised in Nazareth, and he is going to make the journey from Nazareth back to Jerusalem. And all of the messianic prophecies from Genesis all the way to Malachi are going to become, are going to unfold in his life and in his ministry and in his death and in his resurrection. And they're going to be given an opportunity to be saved. And the nations are going to be given the opportunity to be saved. And the future is going to be given an opportunity where you can be saved. You see, God is going to bring historically to bear All of these things, so that you can be saved. No wonder in verse 14 it says, O Jerusalem, wash your heart from wickedness that you may be saved. What can wash away my sins? You know the answer nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? nothing but the blood of Jesus. No wonder Jesus would say that He is the living water. That the Spirit would come inside of us and out of our innermost being would come floods of living water. If you want the stain removed internally and permanently, then wash Wash in the only place that can actually save you. Wash in the blood of the Lamb. Wash in the sacrifice of Jesus. We're going to have to finish the chapter next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, again, I I thank You and praise You for the grace and the mercy that's found in Jesus. Lord, we pray that we would continue to begin to, to, to remind ourselves that, that history has come from some place and it's going someplace. That just like there was a world that was going to be visited by judgment and Jerusalem was going to fall. Lord, we're given the awful news that Jerusalem will probably fall yet again. That Jerusalem will be a, become a burdensome stone and a weight. Around the nations. But Lord we have great. Great hope and great promise. That all of human history. Is headed in one particular direction. And that is the return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That there is going to come a time. There will come a time. When human history. Will be done with. For the time of the Gentiles will come to a conclusion, and that the unfinished business with the Jew will begin. And Heavenly Father, we pray that as men and women we would embrace the charge that's been given to us, that we would blow the trumpet, that we would sound the warning. Lord, we pray that we would be willing to proclaim the gospel. That we would be willing to defend the gospel. But that Lord we would also be willing. To warn people. About judgment. Always remembering that grace precedes judgment. And now is a time of grace. Now is a day of mercy. There is still time that we can flee into the arms of Jesus that we can still be washed in His blood and cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand.